can see what I'm going to be preaching on this morning, Principles for Enduring Suffering. Now, we're going through the book of 1 Peter, and I remind you that Peter wrote to instruct the body of Christ how to live life within the context of a surrounding society that at times are just going to be hostile to your faith. But he always has the gospel in view whenever he does it. He always teaches us that whenever we're talking about how we live or how we behave at home or at work or uh, whenever we're out in society uh, in such a way we must always behave in such a way that always fosters and never hinders the gospel message. But here's the thing, no matter how Christ-like we are, no matter how Christ-like we live our lives, whether I'm talking about home, whether I'm talking about work, whether I'm talking about the neighborhood around you, at times we must accept and know that at times some of us are always going to be suffering sometime. There's always going to be, for the Christian, some suffering. <clears throat> Think about it. After all, our Savior suffered for being righteous. Our Savior suffered for being uh, righteous. And so Jesus promised that everyone who follows after him will in some fashion at times have to take up our own cross and partake in his sufferings. So in the next several sermons, I want to explore with you the principles for enduring suffering in this life that is thoroughly Christian. In other words, they are principles from the Bible for followers of Jesus Christ. Peter teaches us, whoa, hello. It's no problem, you just have to hit the on switch. Works every time. Peter teaches us that whatever befalls us, that as long as we are looking to Jesus, we will not ultimately be harmed. And the key word there is ultimately. So in this context now, let's be clear what Peter is writing about, because there are any number of reasons why we could suffer. We could suffer just as a result of a broken or failing relationship that's just breaking our hearts. There could be the diagnosis of a terrible disease like cancer. There could be the sudden emergency like a stroke. There could be the loss of a job, loss of income for your family. It could be the death of a loved one. There are any number of reasons why you and I might experience suffering in everyday life, but specifically, Within the context of 1 Peter, he is talking about those who suffer persecution for living for Jesus. Now, that said, that this book is specifically about the, those who suffer persecution for living for Jesus, I want to say that the principles that Peter gives for enduring suffering transcend that specific instance. And so we're going to make a broader, wider application uh, on suffering this morning, even though we're certainly going to talk about that one. Now, as I read this text today, I want to warn you, it contains one of the most confusing passages in the New Testament. Okay, so when I get to verse 9, don't look there, wait till I get there. When I get there and you start saying, what does this mean? You know, did Jesus go to hell to preach the gospel to people there? Does baptism save? Is that what Peter's saying? Look, when I get to verse 19, don't you hyperventilate. I'll get to it, okay? Just sit tight and let me and give me a chance to get to it. Now, with that warning, let's go on to God's word for principles for enduring suffering as we worship him today. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning with verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? 
But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. So in this passage, let's take a look at three things that, uh, in trying to understand God's word on suffering to us today. A pragmatic principle of potential ministry in a perfect way. Now Peter begins in this passage what he has done a few other times in his letter. In other words, he begins with a, a very pragmatic, uh, what works, a practical principle. But before I give you the pragmatic principle for handling suffering, I want you to note this. There is nothing about Peter's life following Jesus that would ever cause any of us to think that what Peter is saying is that following Jesus is going to end all the problems that you have in life. Peter never says that, and there's nothing in his life that he lived that would indicate that. Jesus never said that, just the opposite, in fact. And so no prophet in the Old Testament, no preacher in the New Testament ever suggests that when you follow Jesus, you know, all your problems are going to be solved. You're going to be healed. All your loved ones are going to be healed. Everything's going to work out just fine for you. So when Peter says in verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? He is not saying that if you live life as a good person, no harm will ever come to you. I say that because people always say, what did I do to deserve this? And the implication when somebody says that is I'm a good person. What did I do to deserve this? And Peter never indicates that just because you live life as a good person, if you will, that no harm is ever going to come to you, that you'll never have suffering in your life. After all, Peter was crucified for living a life of good. Peter was crucified for following Jesus. And so his first principle for enduring suffering is this. What you need to do is have a long-term picture and to know that Christ-like behavior in suffering will always lead you to the ultimate victory. Christ-like behavior will always lead you to the ultimate victory. And that's why he says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And so he says, have no fear of them who can cause your suffering. Don't be troubled 
about life, about the sufferings that you go through in life. Because God will personally bless all those who endure their suffering his way. And the way that God blesses us when we're suffering is by giving us his peace. Now, pragmatically, Peter says, less trouble will come on you if you live life as a good person. Remember, this is the same advice he gave us early in the letter and talking about how we deal with our government when our government persecutes us. Less trouble will come on you if you live life as a good person. It's just common sense. Troublemakers bring trouble upon themselves, right? Common sense. He's saying just be careful as you live life out there because life is always going to be tough. But it's tougher if you're stupid. Okay, and so uh, just be careful when you're living life out there. Troublemakers bring trouble upon themselves. As a general principle of living life, live life as a good person. And so what Peter is saying is we're all going to suffer, but how you endure matters. And a principle of enduring faith is minimize your suffering just by being good, a good person as you live life. Now remember, this is in regard to suffering because you're living for Jesus, okay? This is what First Peter's about. Suffering simply because you're living for Jesus. And so Peter says, if you endure this way, as an act of faith in God, then you can trust God for the ultimate outcome of your circumstances causing you suffering. And while you're going through it, you can be blessed with the peace of God when you need it the most. Verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. So have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now you might have to suffer at work because you're the lone Christian living there, but you gotta remember these principles apply to Paul and to Peter and to others who went to jail, Roman jail, who went to jail suffering for living for Jesus Christ. And trusting God gave them peace. And their God is your God. And that same God can give you peace when you're going through your sufferings in life, as long as you are enduring that suffering by trusting in your Lord. You know, for some time this week, especially this week, I've been praying for the release of this pastor in Turkey who's been in prison simply for practicing his Christianity. Uh, he hasn't been able to be with his family for a very long time, yet he is trusting God for the ultimate outcome. And everything that I get to read about what he says indicates that he and his family have God's peace about what is happening to them and whatever is going to be happening to them. And that's exactly what Peter is writing about here. There's great power in knowing that Christ-like Behavior, while you're suffering, leads to victory simply because God promises it. There's great power in that promise, knowing that I will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, never, ever turn from Christ when you are suffering and always, always turn to Christ in your suffering. I say that because it is absolutely common in all the churches I belong to where somebody goes through a tremendous trial and the first thing that you see is they begin to drop out of church. And the very thing that they shouldn't do, they do. 
They turn from Christ because they're suffering instead of turning to Christ in the midst of their suffering. And they lose out on the blessing. They lose out on the power of God and it becomes a lonely road that they take. Now that principle of turning to Christ in your sufferings transcends this specific case of when you're persecuted for living for Jesus Christ and it covers all of the realm of sufferings that you and I could go through in everyday life. It's a principle that is applicable to all suffering. If I endure in faith trusting God, I know, I have been promised by God that I will ultimately delivered, be delivered by Christ or I will ultimately be delivered to Christ. I can't lose. In the long run, I win. In the ultimate outcome, I win according to the promise of God. And yet how many people have to live life unaware of that promise or maybe even knowing it, but not living it, not taking full advantage. You know, when you have a promise given to you by God and you ignore it, that's like you having health insurance, but choosing not to use it and instead paying for it all on your own. These are the riches of Christ that so many people, so many Christians ignore because they cave into their feelings instead of trusting in the truth that God has given to them. I was at a coffee shop back in the church when I was pastoring in Virginia. I always went every morning to this, uh, to this same coffee shop and this Marine Lieutenant Colonel started coming in. I'm a Marine, so naturally I connected with him. He was just getting ready now, just getting ready to graduate from the Marine Corps War College. And so this guy is at the top of his career, at the top of his game. And the future really looks bright for him. And I have tried to witness to him like I do all Marines I come in contact with, and, and he just wouldn't have it. Always deflected the conversation, wasn't interested in talking about anything spiritual. Then one day he comes in and I say, there's just something different about this guy. He's kind of withdrawn, he's quiet, looks puzzled, looks somewhat distant. So I just asked him if he was okay, and he told me he had just been diagnosed with cancer. So I was seeing him the day after his diagnosis. I told him, well, I can tell you're still in the, I just got hit in the head with a two by four stage um, that follows the cancer diagnosis. Told him I'd had cancer now for five years, and suddenly he wanted to talk to me. You know, cancer made him interested. Suddenly he wanted to talk to me. In fact, He'd read enough in the 24 hours to know that as a philosophy, he told me he generally wanted to stay positive about the whole thing and trust God. And I said, well, you're off to a good start. To stay positive when you've been given a cancer diagnosis is to wake up each day and to decide today I'm going to be living. I'm not going to be a man dying of cancer. It's a philosophy. Today I will live. Today I'm going to be living and not today I'm going to be dying of this cancer. I said, you're off to a good start. And I told him trusting God was good, but he really needed to know deeper truth about God in order to be enabled to trust and receive the power that comes with trusting God. And I offered to teach him uh, a Bible study on suffering God because I knew that would open the door for me to share the gospel with him. Well, in the end, he really wasn't interested in a Bible study with me, but of course he did take one of the real Jesus booklets that I always offer to uh, pass out to people. I'm offering one to you. See me at the end of the service. I'll, I'll give you one for free. No strings attached. But you are free me to buy me coffee if you want to. But, uh, but anyway, uh, uh, he took one of those and, you know, he left and I, I moved. And I have to tell you, I just uh, hurt for the guy because 
Deep down, he's got a good attitude, but he's trying to do this all from the strength within, from within. If you live long enough, you'll find sooner or later, no matter how tough you are, no matter how strong you are within, sooner or later, life is going to give something that can beat you up. Even if you're strong, it happens to your child, and nobody is strong when it comes to something happening to their child. And so there is this promise of the power of God to all of those who endure suffering through faith in God. It's a powerful promise. It's the truth that I'm talking about today. Faith brings God's peace. And that is a key principle for enduring suffering in this world. Um, my daughter Julie sent me this uh, not too long after I got diagnosed with cancer. It's what cancer cannot do. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It says, what if you had an appointment with a doctor and found out that you had cancer? That's how it happened to me, by the way. Routine physical on Friday. The doctor calls me on Monday and says, go right to the emergency room. I think you got leukemia except I was eating pancakes, and I said, not till I eat these. You know, I've already paid for them. I'm eating the pancakes. So by the end of the day, boom, I'm diagnosed with uh, leukemia. And this is, maybe you've heard this news or heard it on behalf of a loved one. I want to tell you some things cancer cannot do. Cancer cannot shatter hope. Cancer cannot corrode faith. Cancer cannot eat away peace. Cancer cannot place a limit on eternal life. Cancer cannot quench the spirit of God, and cancer cannot lessen the power of the resurrection. That's how limited cancer is. That's what cancer cannot do. So I keep this with me every now and then. I need to look at it, and it's a blessing to me. Well, that brings me to my second point, from a pragmatic principle to a potential ministry. Peter invites all Christ's followers to look at how every situation, even the bad ones that cause suffering, can be turned into a potential gospel ministry. He says in verse 15, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now when you endure being slandered, even though you've been doing good, when you endure persecution, even though it's just for you living for Jesus, what Jesus told you in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.10, is blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the ultimate victory that Peter is talking about, that Jesus talks about. He goes on to pro promise us, Jesus says, if you follow me, listen, people are going to say bad things about you. You know why? Because they hate me. Jesus says, and you're followers of me, so you're going to get it. You're going to uh, get it. But if you suffer these things, Jesus says, for my name's sake, great will be your reward in heaven. Before you turn from Jesus, just remember Jesus says, when you turn to me, great will be your reward in heaven. Peter builds upon the teachings of Jesus. You know, in like manner, all the epistles in your New Testament, they build upon the teachings of the gospel. And so Peter builds upon the teachings of Jesus here. And Peter says, Jesus and Peter, respond to being reviled by not reviling back. 
Remember that the next time somebody insults your favorite political candidate and you spew the same venom out of your mouth that they do in insulting you. We are to be different because we are in Jesus Christ. So practically speaking, Peter says, first of all, it gives you a clear conscience. Gives you a clear conscience. You know that you don't deserve what you're getting. And you know that all you really have done is good. Even if you're being reviled, you know in your conscience that you don't deserve it. Second, even your persecutor knows that when you're being good, they are being bad. Verse 16, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now look, I understand there are some genuine hard cases out there. Some people who are just hard souls who seem to have no shame. But they are relatively few and far between. Most people do have a sense of shame. Even the people out there who are apart from Christ, they have a sense of shame. That's the general work that God's Holy Spirit does in the world of generally convicting people of wrongdoing, generally convicting people uh, when they sin against each other. And so that's what he's saying here. Uh, Even those who persecute you will be made aware that they're wrong, that they're bad by doing you bad even though all you've done is good. Okay, and so always take the opportunity to take a bad situation and be ready to turn it into a potential ministry. Peter is giving us this principle for enduring suffering. Sometime doing good to those who do you bad is actually the very thing that opens the door for you to share the gospel with them. And you can return good for evil if you know that ultimately vengeance is the Lord's. Okay, ultimately, vengeance is the Lord's. Now, ultimately, Jesus will return and judge injustice in this world. Jesus will return and judge unrepentant sinners. So what does that mean? It means that if you're saved, you just have to trust that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Ultimately, everybody who causes you such grief and does you harm for being good, ultimately they're going to get theirs. They will be punished, ultimately. But if you're not saved, and by that I mean if you have not been saved from the penalty of your sins against God, it means this. You can come to Christ in humble repentance of your sins against God right now. You can do it right now. You can do it the day before you leave. Or you can wait till Christ comes and removes you from God's presence forever. That's what Peter is saying. In other words, here's a general principle. How you feel about Jesus right now will determine what happens to you forever uh, in terms of an eternal destiny. So that's why help was created. God's word says it was created for Satan and his demons for all of those who rebelled against the eternally great God. And it has been created for all of those who want to live life with Satan and his demons in rebellion against their creator. So if God's spirit is convicting you of your sin, if God's spirit is calling you away from that to him, then just listen. Just give in to it. 
Give in to what God's Spirit is doing in your life right now. And let me help you with that. You can either take that booklet of offering on the free Jesus, or you can just make an appointment with me, talk to you right now. We want to talk to you. That's the most eternally important decision you're ever going to make. Take care of this situation right now. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you're interested in God, it's because God is interested in you first. Listen to the Spirit of God as he works in you uh, today. Let me just make that appeal to everybody. But it means you. In whatever state we're talking about here, you come and let's talk about how God has made a provision for you to be forgiven. But for those of you who are forgiven and you are followers of Jesus Christ, Peter's saying that when we endure suffering and we respond to bad behavior against us with good behavior back, then what Peter is saying is that makes us like Jesus. Jesus before Pilate. Jesus before the Sanhedrin. That's what he did. Pilate looked at Jesus and told everybody, I can find no fault with this man. And so when we respond to bad behavior by being good, we are like Jesus. And that opens the door for us often to testify for Jesus. The circumstance itself and our response to it is what opens the door to a previously closed heart to be able to talk to them about Jesus. And he says, we have to be ready for it. Verse 15 says, always ready, prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. But then do it with gentleness and respect. There's really no need for us to be abrasive in our witness. We are to be respectful and present Jesus Christ, the Savior, and let Jesus Christ take care of who's going to get saved. I tell you this because in my early days, I messed up on this royally bad. In my early days of being a Christian, I, I, I meant well. I was zealous for Jesus Christ, but I was abrasive in my witness and overpowering in my, in my methodology. Uh, it was almost like, as I look back, I was more interested in seeing these people get saved by showing them how, how, wrong, how wrong they are and what they believe, rather than showing them how right Jesus is. When you're like I was, you actually can be meaning well, abrasive and overbearing. I was out with my pastor who gave me a start in ministry. I just buried him a few months ago. And I got frustrated with this guy that wouldn't, um, just wouldn't accept Christ. So I gave him that quick sermon about all of us walking the tight wire over the fires of hell. And anytime God wants to, he can just let go of his end. And when we got done, you know, pastor took me out and said, you know, Brad, the gospel's offensive enough without you adding your personality to it. <laughs> and uh, I mean, that was like a body slam. You know, just like he picked me up and slammed me down on the ground. And, but I never forgot it. I realized that you can mean well and do it all the wrong way. And that's what Peter's saying here. Do this with gentleness and respect. Uh, pray for opportunities to witness. And know that suffering, whether it's your suffering or their suffering, is just the door that you're looking for that opens sometimes to present the opportunity for you to talk about Jesus Christ. Be ready for it. Always prepared when that happens. Sometimes it's scary. The man who currently serves as our Secretary of Defense, I was able to witness to him one time during the war in 2003 uh, over there uh, in Iraq. But uh, uh, there were other generals in the room. Was I scared? You bet I was. They all outranked me. I 
witnessed in my own church in Virginia to a retired Air Force four-star general, and he got saved right there in my office. And he got saved when I told him, okay, look, man, general, I'm really impressed with those stars that you wear on your collar, four on this side, four on this side. But do you think that the creator who hung the stars in the heaven is going to be impressed with your stars when you stand before him? You know, that got to the the old guy, and he turned, he trusted Christ as his savior. Just a few years ago, I buried him at the Air Force Academy, and the room was filled with active duty and retired generals. Did I find it a little intimidating? You bet I did. But the Lord gave me boldness. I prayed for it, and I told them the same thing. In fact, I told them that exact story. And what I said to the general that got him saved, I just said the same thing to them. Told them they need to be saved just like this general did. Now, have I ever been chewed out and really uh, blistered for witnessing for Jesus Christ? Yep. Used to work for a two-star general who was Jewish, not a practicing Jew, but proud of his Jewish background. And he ripped me in front of a bunch of other people for sending him Christmas cards. You know, uh, and, and that's okay. Uh, in the end, uh, long story short, we're still friends. We still email each other. He still asked me about my health and stuff uh, regularly, but it's simply because I've always been respectful. It helps to be a good worker too, that's a different story. But, uh, but it helps that I was just respectful all the time. And so he still disagrees with me for now, but he is, but the relationship that we have together based on mutual respect keeps my witnessing door open. And sometimes you just never know when it's gonna happen. My own mother, disagreed with me about faith for years. My mother for, for decades demanded that I not tell her that she was lost. It infuriated her to think that I was telling her grandkids that she wasn't gonna go to heaven um, when she died. Ultimately, after decades of just trying to stay respectful with my mom and, open do- and, and, and be ready when doors of opportunity presented itself, Over decades, my mom got saved right at the church where I pastored. I had her funeral there. We had her funeral on Saturday. The next day, Sunday, my brother got saved during the the church uh, service. And so, my friends, we must learn to see all suffering, Peter says, whether it's our suffering or somebody else's suffering as a really potential open door to share the witness for Jesus Christ That is the peace that all people suffering are looking for, even if they don't know it. So we must always be prepared to give a testimony, a witness of that life-changing, strength-enabling point of view that we have because we have Jesus. And that uh, Peter then points us to a perfect way. And simply put, it's the way of Jesus. Verse 17, for it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And so Peter says, if it's God's will for us to suffer, then let it be for doing good, like our Savior, like Jesus. That doesn't always mean, even though we are promised that ultimately we will be delivered, That doesn't always mean that we're going to be delivered from our suffering back to our nice live the American dream lifestyle. Okay? That uh, God always makes the boo-boo go away whenever we ask him. 
It doesn't always mean that at all. It doesn't mean that everybody we witness to in the oncology center gets cured of their cancer. It doesn't mean that everybody we pray for gets their job back right away. But you know what? Sometimes it does. Really, sometimes people do get cured after you pay for them, pray for them. Sometimes people do get their job back after you pray for them. And so that's why we pray. These Wednesday night prayer gatherings, they're important. The Sunday morning with the guys, that's important. That's why people pray, because sometimes God does answer, even in our time frame, in the immediate way, yes. But not always in our time frame does God answer and give us all that we ask for every time, whenever we want it. That's just not gonna, uh, not gonna happen. It doesn't mean this, as long as I live good, God owes me. As long as I live good, then I live. Every time, it doesn't mean that. Jesus was perfectly good, like you and I will never be, and he died. Always being good doesn't mean God owes you to live. Jesus was perfectly good, and he died, and so did nearly all of his apostles. But it does mean, whether we live or die, God will get the glory, and we will ultimately be delivered. Ultimate deliverance means either we are delivered from the circumstance, or we are delivered into the presence of Jesus where there's joy forevermore. We win. It's just a matter of time. For the Christian, death isn't the end of it. It's the beginning of it. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Death just opens the door to eternity. Nothing really to be afraid of. And so don't worry, Christian, about those who are going to do you wrong in life. Here's why. Vindication will come when Jesus comes. And deliverance is coming, either now or when we are delivered into the presence of Jesus. Now, with that knowledge that vindication and deliverance is coming later, Peter says you can handle anything that life affords you now. You can handle it. Because in the end, you win. You've been promised the victory. In the end, you win. And so with that knowledge, you can handle, by God's grace, anything that God allows in your life now. Now let me cover that problem passage with you. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. People interpret that to mean hell, the underworld, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to be honest with you. Commentators are all over the place in terms of what does this really mean. Martin Luther, who's way smarter than I am, uh, will ever be, once said, I do not know for a certainty what Peter means here. Let me give you the interpretation I favor. It's from the MacArthur Study Bible, if you need an interpret interpreter who's just smarter than me. Okay, I like that particular study Bible, but this is from that study Bible. I believe it means that between his death and his resurrection, Christ did go to the underworld, to the regions of hell, now inhabited by a special class of demons that did particular evil in the days of Noah. In other words, they're already in hell. Okay? Uh, and Christ went to those regions to proclaim his victory. 
He didn't go to preach the gospel and give everybody a second chance. He went to proclaim his victory, his gospel victory over death, over evil, and over them. And furthermore, the rest of the Bible tells us on baptism that Peter can't be saying that water baptism saves like the ark saved Noah and his family from the water. Rather, Peter is giving a spiritual expression of an earthly reality. The fact that eight people were saved from God's judgment by the ark is analogous to our salvation from God's judgment in Christ. In other words, the ark is a picture of Jesus who saves. It's the picture of deliverance. In fact, deliverance fits within the context of this overall passage. Key reason why I interpret it that way. And so if that's not enough for you, and you want to torture yourself some more over this passage, you know, this will cost you a cup of coffee and a Twinkie. Uh, okay, but you take me out and buy me those things and I'll go over the various interpretations with you and, uh, and we can pound our head on the edge of this table until it feels good when it quits. You know, but uh, it's a hard one, but we can talk about it some more if you want to. I hope you'll take that interpretation for now. Let's wrap this up. Suffering in this world is inevitable, even for the Christian, because our Savior suffered too. So what's important is we all know there will be vindication. There will be final justice. God promises that. And we are to live today with the promise of final justice tomorrow. So our world may not feel just to you now, but you can have confidence that Jesus is coming to inaugurate a just world, a restored paradise that all who are gods through faith in Jesus Christ will be a part of. Peter teaches us that's the key for enduring to live today by focusing on all the heavenly promises that are yours for tomorrow. So let's pray. And anyone who wants to know what that means, to be gods can see me after the service and we'll talk, or at least you can take one of these free booklets. Let me pray and then the men will come up and we'll just enjoy the Lord's Supper together. The one whose death made our victory for all suffering possible. Father, I know that whenever I preach a message like this on suffering, that it's always going to speak to somebody in the immediate sense. There cannot be a group of people here gathered without knowing that somebody right now is suffering. Suffering is one of those things where either you are suffering or you soon will be. It's life in this sin-cursed earth. But God, that's not your will. We're the ones who brought that on. We're the ones who brought the curse of sin on this earth. We're the ones who brought death to this planet because we chose to live in rebellion against you. Thank you that your will is to send Jesus Christ to shed his blood on the cross so that all who come to you through faith in Jesus Christ can be forgiven of their sin and partakers of the eternal life that you have promised all who belong to you. Thank you, God, that life on this sin-cursed earth is not the long-term plan, but that you intend to restore paradise just like you intended an original creation. Thank you for the promise that all who are yours through faith in Jesus Christ will be partakers of that paradise where there will be suffering no more, where all tears will be wiped away, and there will just be eternal joy in the presence of Jesus with you yourself as our light. And so if there's one here today that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, 
I pray that they would watch this communion, this Lord's Supper, and understand what you did through the death of Jesus Christ, the just who died for the unjust. And I pray that you'll help give them the unction, the courage to see me after the service and really understand from your word how they may be forgiven for their sin against you and adopted into the family of God to enjoy the strength to live today and the promise of ultimate victory tomorrow. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.